Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This will be a discussion of 3 Nephi chapter 24. So now uh, the Lord has commanded Nephi to um, add some scriptures that they didn't have before. So let's go ahead and get into verse 1. Now, and it came to pass that he commanded them that they should write the words which the Father had given unto Malachi, which he should tell unto them. And it came to pass that after they were written, he expounded them. And these are the words which he, had, he did tell unto them, saying, Thus said the Father unto Malachi, Behold, I will send my messenger... The passage was rightly applied to John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the Lord's first coming, but the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy will be in the latter days. It tells of the appearance of the Lord suddenly in his temple, asking rhetorically who will be able to endure his coming and the cleansing that will accompany it. Among the heavenly messengers of the restoration, the following could be listed. John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, Elijah, and Moroni. Perhaps what Malachi envisioned was not an individual, but the collective ministry of all the messengers who restored doctrine and keys in the last days, each in turn preparing the way for Christ. The prophet Joseph Smith was also a great messenger sent to prepare the way for the Lord. Also, the gospel restored in the latter days to make the world ready for the Lord is a messenger sent before him. Also, the uh, missionaries that are going throughout the world are also messengers, and that was by uh, Kent Jackson. He had already come suddenly to his temple on April the 3rd, 1836, along with Elijah, Eli uh, Elias, and Moses. Um, so he sends his messenger. Um, as Jesus expounded the scriptures to his American saints, he quoted to them the revelations that now comprise Malachi 3 and 4 in the Old Testament. These chapters contain significant doctrinal material that reveals much concerning the Lord's coming. Perhaps that is why the Lord directed that they be written in the Nephite record, and, per, and perhaps it is why Mormon was inspired to include them in his Book of Mormon abridgment for us. Because of the fragmented nature of the material in Malachi 3 and 4, in which a diverse variety of topics is discussed in short, sometimes unconnected segments. This section appears to be a collection of utterances, a quote book, and not a continuous prophecy. Perhaps some of the brief quotations may not even be those of Malachi himself. Elder McConkie suggested that Malachi was quoting specifically in Malachi 4 verses 1 to 2 from the words of the ancient prophet Zenos, whose writings were contained on the plates of brass but are not found in the Bible as it stands today. Continuing verse uh, 1, And he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Joseph Smith taught that the spirit of Elias is to prepare the way for a greater revelation of God, which is the priesthood of Elias, or the priesthood that Aaron was ordained unto. And when God sends a man into the world to prepare for a greater work, holding the keys of the power of Elias, it was called the doctrine of Elias, even from the early ages of the world. John's mission was limited to preaching and baptizing, but what he did was legal. And when Jesus Christ came to any of John's disciples, he baptized them with fire and the Holy Ghost. One may fairly ask, if John was the Elias of Christ's first coming, then who was the Elias of Christ's second coming? Was it John the Baptist? Was it Joseph Smith? The answer is found in Doctrine and Covenants. I have sent mine 
everlasting covenant into the world to be a light to the world and to be a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. That was DNC 45.9. This is according to the rest restorative functions of the doctrine of Elias, for there were many angels who brought their keys back to the earth to establish the everlasting covenant in preparation for the Lord's second coming. Bruce R. McConkie said, Who is the promised Elias who was to come and restore all things? Was it one man? Certainly not. Many angelic ministrants have been sent from the courts of glory to confer keys and powers, to commit their dispensations and glories again to men on earth. It is apparent that no one's messenger, no one messenger has carried the whole burden of the restoration. Joseph Smith said, The spirit of Elias is first Elijah second and Messiah last. Elias is a forerunner to prepare the way, and the spirit and power of Elijah is to come after, holding the keys of power, building the temple to the capstone, placing the seals of the Melchizedek priesthood upon the house of Israel, and making all things ready when Messiah comes to his temple, which is last of all. Matthias Cowley said, when he comes in verification of, Ma of Malachi's prophecy, he will come suddenly and in power and great glory. He will find a temple to come to. To do this, there must be a people called of God, instructed by revelation, in order to know where, when, and how to, to erect in keeping with divine approval such a sacred edifice. Nothing short of a new gospel dispensation, ushered in and perpetuated by, by direct revelation from the Lord, can fulfill the provisions of Malachi's prediction. Elder Holland said, Christ, who is the great messenger of the covenant, did come to the first temple in this dispensation in Kirtland, Ohio, on April 3, 1836. He has, of course, come to other temples and will yet do so, particularly in Jerusalem and Jackson County, Missouri, as part of the culmination of his majestic second coming. Now, verse 2, but who may abide the day of his coming? the second company they're talking about, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So um, the earth shall be cleansed and receive its paradisiacal glory. Anciently, a fuller was one who cleansed and whitened garments. The process of fulling or cleansing clothes consists in treading or stamping on the garments with the feet or with hats in or with bats in tubs of water in which some alkaline substance Answering the purpose of soap had been dissolved. Christ's blood is the only fuller's soap strong enough to remove all stains of sin from those who repent and fully accept his atoning sacrifice. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, declared the Lord. However, the, the blood of Christ will have no cleansing effect upon the wicked, for the stain of sin shall remain on their garments. Hoyt Brewster, uh, that was by Hoyt Brewster, um, Again, Orson Pratt said, He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That same fire will rest upon the, the abodes of those who come into that temple, and they will, be, they will be filled with fire and the Holy Ghost. They will be purged of all iniquity. And every ordinance that will be administered in that temple will be administered by holy hands, and you will understand and know the meaning thereof. The Lord will reveal these things in their day. He will reveal everything that is needful so that the knowledge of God may rest upon you and that there may be, it, may be, may be no darkness in you, uh, within you. Amen. Verse 3, And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. Prior to the second coming, those descendants of Levi who are converted and purified by the gospel of Jesus Christ will participate in the restoration of all things by once again offering sacrifice. That was by Millet McConkie. 
John the Baptist, remember, was a, also a son of Levi. That there is more than one meaning for the offering and righteousness to be made by the sons of Levi at or near the second coming of the Lord is evident. With regard to animal sacrifice, Joseph Smith said, It is generally supposed that sacrifice was entirely done away when the great sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, was offered up, and that there will be no necessity for the ordinance of sacrifice in the future. But those who assert this are certainly not acquainted with the duties, privileges, and authority of the priesthood, or with the prophets. The offering of sacrifice has ever been connected and forms a part of the duties of the priesthood. It began with the priesthood and will be continued until after the coming of Christ from generation to generation. We frequently have mention made of the offering of sacrifice by the servants of the Most High in ancient days, prior to the law of Moses, which ordinances will be continued when the priesthood is restored with all its authority, power, and blessings. These sacrifices, as well as every ordinance belonging to the priesthood, will, when the temple of the Lord shall be built, and the sons of Levi be purified, be fully restored and attended to in all their powers, ramifications, and blessings. This ever did and ever will exist when the powers of the Melchizedek priesthood are sufficiently manifest, else how can the restitution of all things spoken of by the holy prophets be brought to pass? It is not to be understood that the law of Moses will be established again with all its rites and variety of ceremonies. This has never been spoken of by the prophets, but those things which existed prior to Moses' day, namely sacrifice, will be continued. A modern revelation speaks of the sons of Moses and the sons of Aaron offering an acceptable sacrifice in the temple to be erected in Independence, Jackson County, Missouri. John Taylor said in a conversation with, uh, with Roth, Rothschild, I remember some time ago having a conversation with Baron Rothschild, a Jew. I was showing him the temple here and said he, Elder Taylor, what do you mean by this temple? What is the object of it? Why are you building it? Said I, your fathers had among them prophets who revealed to them the mind and will of God. We have among us prophets who reveal to us the mind and will of God as they did. One of your prophets said, The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, but who may abide the day of his coming? For he shall sit as a refiner's fire and a purifier of silver. Now, said I, sir, will you point me out a place on the face of the earth where God has a temple? Said he, I do not know of any. You remember the words of your prophet that I have quoted? Said he, Yes, I know the prophet said that, but I do not know of any temple anywhere. Do you consider that this is that temple? No, sir, it is not. Well, what is this temple for? Said I. The Lord has told us to build this temple so that we may administer therein baptisms for our dead, which I explained to him, and also to perform some of the sacred matrimonial alliances and covenants that we believe in that are rejected by the world generally, but which are among the purest, most exalting and ennobling principles that God ever revealed to man. Well, then, this is not our temple. No, but, but, said I, you will build a temple, for the Lord has shown us, among other things, that you Jews have quite a role to perform in the latter days, and that all the things spoken of by your old prophets will be fulfilled, that you will be gathered to old Jerusalem, and that you will build a temple there. And when you build that temple, and the time has arrived, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Some time ago, a few ladies met to study the scriptures. While reading the third chapter of Malachi, they came upon a remarkable expression in the verse, third verse, and it says, And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. One lady decided to visit a silversmith and report to the others on what he had said about the subject. She went accordingly and, and without telling him the reason for her visit, begged the silversmith to tell her about the process of refining silver. 
After he had fully described it to her, she asked, Sir, do you sit while the work is refining, uh, while the work of refining is going on? Oh, yes, ma'am, replied the silversmith. I must sit and watch the furnace constantly, for if the time necessary for refining is exceeded in the slightest degree, the silver will be injured. The lady at once saw the beauty and comfort of the expression, He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. God sees it necessary to put his children into the furnace, but his eye is steadily intent on the work of purifying, and his wisdom and love are both engaged in the best manner for us. Our trials do not come at random, and he will not let us be tested beyond what we can endure. Before she left, the lady asked one final question. How do you know when the process is complete? That's quite simple, replied the silversmith. When I can see my own image in the silver, the refining process is finished. And, there's, and that author is unknown. Joseph Smith said, these sacrifices, as well as every ordinance belonging to the priesthood, will, when the temple of the Lord shall be built, and the sons of Levi be purified, be fully restored and attended to in all their powers, ramifications, and blessings. This ever did and ever will exist when the powers of the Melchizedek priesthood are sufficiently manifest. Else how can the restitution of all things spoken of by the prophets be brought to pass? Joseph Fielding Smith said, It should be remembered that the great temple which is yet to be built in the city Zion will not be one edifice, but twelve. In another place, it also says that there will be twenty-four temples. Some of these temples will be for the lesser priesthood. When these temples are built, it is very likely that provision will be, will be made for some ceremonies and ordinances which may be performed by the Aaronic priesthood, and a place provided where the sons of Levi may offer their offering in righteousness. This will have to be the case because all things are to be restored. The sacrifice of animals will be done to complete the restoration when the temple spoken of is built at the beginning of the millennium or in the restoration blood sacrifices will be performed long enough to complete the fullness of the restoration in this dispensation afterwards sacrifice will be of some other character that was a long reading wasn't it for verse 3 okay let's go to verse 4 then shall the offering of judah and jerusalem be pleasant unto the lord as in the days of old as and as in former years and I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be swift witness, a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger, and fear me not, saith the Lord of hosts. Here's a list of the types of people that will be present at the second coming. Elder Holland said, The Lord declares his anger not only against sorcerers, adulterers, and those who are untrue in any way, but also against those who are ungenerous to the hireling, the stranger, the widow, and the fatherless. In calling those to return who have strayed, he speaks of the good that could be done to, to such needy if, they, if there were meat in my house. If such tithes and offerings are not returned to the Lord inasmuch as they are rightfully his, then the people in the land are cursed with a curse. Verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye say, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. The Grand Richards said, In a revelation given to the Prophet Joseph Smith at Kirtland, Ohio, September the 11th, 1831, the Lord made very plain the importance of observing the law of tithing. Behold, now it is called today until the coming of the Son of Man, and verily it is a day of sacrifice, and a day for the tithing of my people, for he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. How could one's conscience not burn within him upon the coming of the Son of Man if he realized that he had no contribution to the expense of establishing God's kingdom in the earth? 
Especially would this be so when he when one realizes that all that he has he obtained from the Lord who created the earth and the fullness thereof, and who gave us our lives and our being upon this earth, with a promise that we might inherit the earth eternally, if we are faithful. Should we then not be willing to pay something for such an inheritance? It is not uncommon for a man in this life to pay money for 10 to 25 years to purchase a small plot of ground for his use while he lives upon the earth. Should he be less interested in acquiring an eternal inheritance? It is not unlikely that the law of tithing was an important part of the Lord's plan for the Nephites, as it is for us today. And that was by Kent Jackson. President Kimball said, Sometimes we have been a bit penurious, in other words, stingy, and figured that we had for breakfast one egg, and that cost so many cents, and then we'd give that to the Lord. I think that when we are affluent, as many of us are, that we ought to be very, very generous. I think we should give instead of the amount saved by our two meals of fasting, perhaps much, much more, ten times more, when we are in a position to do it. The concept of fast offerings appears as early as the time of Isaiah when speaking of the true fast. He encouraged people to fast and to deal thy bread to the hungry and bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. The prophet Joseph instituted the practice of collecting fast offerings for the poor in Kirtland, Ohio, and later at Nauvoo, Illinois. The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles sent a general letter to the church defining the principle of fasts, stating, Let this be an ensample to all saints, and there will never be any lack for bread. When the poor are starving, let those who save fast one day, let those who have fast one day and give what they otherwise would have eaten to the bishops for the poor, and everyone will abound for a long time. And this is one great important principle of fasts approved of the Lord. And so long as the saints will all live to this principle with glad hearts and cheerful countenances, they will always have an abundance. I have heard bishops and stake presidents say that the real blessing of the Lord are in the payment of fast offerings, the beginning of the living of the law of uh, consecration. Also, President Reagan, I think, when he visited Temple Square, uh, Welfare Square one time, said when he learned about how the church administers the fasting program, said that if the entire world was able to do this, there would be no poor in the world at all. Verse 9, Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Harold B. Lee said that the opening of the windows of heaven, of course, means revelations from God to him who is willing thus to sacrifice. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he will not destroy the fruits of your ground, Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Satan, those that would de deplete your resources, illnesses, car trouble, employment difficulties, etc. Verse 12, And all nations shall call you bless, blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, yet ye say, What have we spoken against thee? The Book of Mormon re removes a couple of words from the King James Version. Um, it, it removes the words so much. Verse 14, Ye have said, It is vain to serve God, and what doth it profit that we have kept his ordinances, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Opposition will come even to those who follow the Lord. The Lord never breaks his part of the covenant. It is us that breaks it. It seems that the wicked prosper and the evil are elevated. Verse 15, And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. 
Then they, are, they, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. The book of life is the names of the sanctified. Adam kept a written account of, of his faithful descendants in which he recorded their faith and works, their righteousness and devotion, their revelations and visions, and the adherence to the revealed plan of salvation. Wouldn't it be great to have that book? to signify the importance of honoring our worthy ancestors and of hearkening to the great truths revealed to them. Adam called his record a book of remembrance. It was prepared according to the pattern given by the finger of God. We think that Enoch may have been the scribe that uh, wrote that for him. Verse 17, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. We will be a peculiar treasure to the Lord, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. We can return to God by paying tithing. What is the real purpose of tithes? It's to paying tithes is a call to faith. Joseph F. Smith said, By this principle tithing, the loyalty of the people of this church shall be put to the test. By this principle it shall be known who is for the kingdom of God and who is against it. By this principle it shall be seen whose hearts are set on doing the will of God and keeping his commandments, thereby sanctifying the land of Zion unto God, and who are opposed to this principle and have cut themselves off from the blessings of Zion. There is a great deal of importance connected with this principle, for by it shall be known whether we are faithful or unfaithful. In this respect it is as essential as faith in God, as repentance of sin, as baptism for the remission of sin, or as the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that was by uh, Douglas Bassett. Oh, I think I said that was already by Joseph F. Smith. It's in a book uh, compiled by, by um, Doug Bassett. I bear testimony that these things are true, that it's up to us to pay our tithing and, and the offerings, and, and uh, that that's how we build Zion and build up the kingdom of God, and we want to be a part of that. I bear testimony to that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time.